Hello there, and welcome to the Marketing SOS Show. I'm your host, Eric E. And here on the Marketing SOS Show, it's all about helping listeners like yourself with their marketing questions, their marketing problems, issues, whatever they may be, from small business owners to corporate marketers or students, whoever you are, whatever your question, I'm here to help. Now, this is a very special episode of the show because things are switching up a little bit. Now, like I mentioned a second ago, previously, it was all about helping people one-on-one with your questions. And we're still going to do that on the show, but things are evolving a little bit and bringing in guests, people who are experts in their field or have interesting backgrounds in marketing that I think will help us, help facilitate our discussions and help you grow and help balance things out. So yeah, we'll still answer questions, but we'll also educate and expose you to different people with different ideas in marketing, which I think is always you know the best way to go. When you grow your exposure, you grow your ideas and things you can implement and change in your business. So that's why this week we're talking with Darren Chait, one of the founders of Hugo, a meeting note-taking service, as well as one of the authors of 10X Culture. And that kind of leads into what we're talking about here, which is about culture and its importance on your business. It's not something that can just pop out of nowhere. It needs to be cultivated and maintained. It's a hard thing to build and easy thing to lose. So let's get to this interview with Darren and learn exactly why culture is so critical to building your success. So Darren, really interested in one thing and it's non-linear career paths and kind of creeping you on LinkedIn, I noticed that as well as talking to you a little bit beforehand, it looks like going from being a lawyer in Sydney to then being a co-founder of a tech startup in San Francisco in the Bay Area. How, how does that happen? How do you go across the pond and do something like that? Yeah, it's a good question. It's funny. It's something I see as uh, an interesting opportunity. Um, for me, obviously, a point of differentiation that gives me a unique perspective, but it's definitely unconventional, and I often talk about it um, because what happened, right, was I've always had that entrepreneurial itch, if you like. It's always interested me, the idea of creating value in a disproportionate way. You know, like put simply, I wake up in the morning now and we have new customers. Um, that, that's really mm-hmm. cool. So then on the other, on the other extreme, before I, I, I finished college, um, I studied law because I didn't know what I wanted to study. I got caught up in the sort of process that happens. They recruit um, in your last, second last year of college. And before you know it, you're working at this law firm. And uh, three years in, I sort of looked up and went, hang on, what, what am I doing here? I, I, didn't, I didn't agree to this. And, and, and what was so frustrating was what I mentioned before about the idea of creating value in a disproportionate way was the exact opposite of what I was doing. So here I am billing my time as a lawyer. The only time I generate any value is when I'm working, reading, sitting in that sitting in that meeting. As soon as I go home, as soon as I take any vacation, which there wasn't a lot of, um, mm-hmm. it, it turns off right away. So it made no sense to me. Um, so in some sense, I, I sort of um, not regret that uh, at all. I'll talk about the benefits in a minute. But I, 
I sort of wandered and woke up and realized where I was. And, and I think that's part of the, the way I was brought up in Australia. It's, it's a very conservative place. Uh, the startup community and the tech ecosystem was very developing. It wasn't sort of a list of career options or things you could pursue when you finished school or college. Um, and I didn't even think that I could do something like that. I, I thought I had to go and work in business or banking or law or whatever it was. Um, and that's quite unfortunate. I know it's definitely changing. Having said that, um, without being a lawyer, I don't think I would have experienced the pain uh, as strongly as I did today around meetings. Walking out of a meeting and then seeing on your screen how much that meeting cost was totally uh, uh, the, the, the impetus to start Hugo. Realizing that I sat in a meeting I didn't need to be in and a client just got billed $3,500 made me realize the cost of meetings to business. Yeah, it's one thing I don't think a lot of people actually uh, think about is how much meetings cost. Because even yeah. I've sat in some meetings with, you know, a, a lot of C-suite people, a lot of upper management, and at the end of the meeting, we didn't get a lot done. Nothing yeah. really happened. But as I'm sitting there, I'm looking around, I'm kind of calculating what everyone's hourly rate would be. <laughs> exactly. And this one hour might have cost the company twenty thousand dollars in productivity. Uh -huh. Totally. No action items, nothing taken from it. It's just like a status update meeting every week. It's incredibly expensive. It is. And I think the, the more interesting point for me now is that that's becoming widely known. There's so much great content. Harvard Business Review every year does a roundup on meeting cost. There's always online calculators where you can put in annual salaries and see how much you just waste the company. But the cost of meetings now is greater than the time. It's the cultural impact. So think about how you feel. Think about the productivity of a company. Think about how ideas are generated every time you walk out, walk out of one of these terrible meetings. That cost is a lot more than that $20,000 in that mm. case. That sticks with you and sticks with the company um, deeply ingrained in its culture moving forward. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one thing you, you, I think you always hear about in like a l large corporations. Is everyone's always kind of griping about, oh, another meeting or trying to avoid going to certain meetings. So when we kind of talk about the cultural impact, I know in your book, which I, I found really, uh, really interesting, and I read a lot of different books, but I found this one, uh, 10x Culture, to be extremely practical and actionable, where a lot of books you get your kind of grains of nuggets in every, every chapter. But this one I found, it almost reminded me of uh, Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week in that every page I'm reading, I'm like, I'm high, I would, if, I wasn't, if I had an actual physical copy, I'd be highlighting things. But the whole page would almost be highlighted in certain regards when I was reading it. So I, was, I wanted to ask, so in the book, you kind of argue that culture is like one of the number one levers uh, towards success and building like successful teams. I was wondering if you could just go into a little bit more about that in terms of building the culture and why it's so important. Sure, sure. Look, I think culture is definitely a buzzword, um, which is unfortunate because sure. it's been used for so long, uh, for so many generations of business. You know, uh, you, when, you, when I say culture, you might think about uh, motivational posters on the wall of a 1980s <laughs> office. Um, and that's unfortunate. But there's no better way to describe what we're talking about here with culture. Um, and the reason it's so important is in 2019, we are involved in so many more people-based businesses. So at Hugo, we're a software company. That's the strongest example. We we, all we have are people. There's no nothing else is created. We don't have um, a, an a, a, a physical good that that's being retailed and, and sold that people are paying for. Everything we're creating is is based on people. So then we get into the the thought experiment of well, how do we get more and better uh, output from from our people? Um, we want the quality to be better. 
We want the people to be happy and, and, and stick around and, and, and be sustainable. Um, and we obviously want them to work as hard as they can ultimately to produce the best work. Um, and that's why we start thinking about culture. Now, I must say, we didn't think about it that way from a cultural standpoint. Um, we just did what we needed to do along the way in building a business. We hacked lots of things together. We tried different things. We read a lot. We got a lot of advice. And a whole, a whole lot of these little ideas just stuck. So we just kept implementing more of them and doing more and talking to our partners like Atlassian, Zoom, Slack. Um, they shared a whole lot of their ideas. And before we knew it, we had this stitched together um, book, if you like, or really it was a document at the time of really cool ideas for, for making our team work better together um, that we thought we should share. And when we were talking to advisors and people who were real experts in the space, they described it as culture. Only then I scratched my head and said, <laughs> I guess this is culture, the way we work together. So that's the sort of journey to, to, to focus on culture um, and why we think it's so important for a young business like ours and, and perhaps like yours and many others listening. Definitely. I think it is one of those things that a lot of people think they can develop over time or develop later on. But if you're not building the bricks like of the foundation of the company at the start, it's one of those things that can run away from you. And then it's so difficult to kind of come back and fix it. You know, it's so funny. A few weeks ago, someone came up to me having read the book and said, uh, oh, sorry, they just got the book. They hadn't read it yet. And they said, I'm so excited to read this because we're, we're about to redo our culture as if they were like painting their living room. Um, and that for me was like, I had a little chuckle to myself because exactly what you said, Eric, culture isn't something you can roll out or implement. Culture's there, whether you like it or not. It's a function of the personalities and the values in your business. So you, you need to think about, is that the right culture for what you're trying to achieve and what can you do to influence it over time? But you can't implement a culture, replace a culture, uh, not have a culture until later. It's there, it's happening. So what would you say to someone like uh, maybe they're, they're starting at a senior level or a management level at an existing corporation and they know there needs to be a culture change? How would you go about what would you recommend to them to kind of either change something within their own team or with the organization, like, like a larger impact of the organization? Sure. So that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, firstly, this to be realistic. You're, you're, you're managing up, you're managing down, you're trying to change values and behaviors, you're fighting inertia and history. It, 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 there's no easy way to do it. But forget about trying to change the culture. Try and change specific behaviors and the way things are done. Because if you do a few, enough of them or even just starting with a few of those, um, the culture will change. So how do you make decisions how, do, how are new ideas generated? How do you communicate? Um, looking at very specific things like this and implementing those sorts of changes will change your culture. And that's the way we wrote the book. Um, we have, you know, taking those examples, we have um, our favorite way of making decisions as a team. We have a whole lot of different ways to think about communicating as a team. The language you use, um, for example, is one. Um, look, look for lo those little ideas and nuggets that you can just change right this afternoon or tomorrow morning. Um, and when you, as soon as you get to five or ten of those, I promise you now your, your organizational culture will be completely different. That kind of reminds me of in, in the book the the one percent changes every kind of every day. They kind of stack up over time and make huge impacts over the course of the year. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot, of, a lot of people kind of underestimate or overestimate what they can do in a short period of time, but underestimate what they can do it in the long period of time. The kind yeah. of seismic shifts when you look at it from a macro kind of perspective. 
Yeah, that, that's definitely been our, our experience. We, we often joke, you know, the things I need to get done this afternoon aren't going to happen. Uh, but a month feels like a year, um, especially in a small business. The, 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 rate, of, the rate of change is, is, is enormous. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it seems like every day you're just kind of pivoting and dealing with whatever is coming up. Um, <laughs> exactly. So I know a, a large part of a company and like the kind of how they build their culture is based around communication. How you communicate with people, what tools you use, whether how many meetings you have, whether there's status updates or things like that. Could you dive into how you guys kind of intentionally built Hugo's communication strategy? Mm-hmm. How you relate sure. to each other, how you do meetings, things like that? Yep, totally. So it's based around uh, two two key things. Uh, the first is bandwidth of communication. So if you think about bandwidth, being a bit nerdy here for a second, excuse me, mm-hmm. you've got on one side the lowest possible way of communicating from lowest, sorry, possible bandwidth way of communicating. Like let's say a text message. I send you a text message saying, hi, I'm going to be late to the meeting full stop. Then on the other side, we have the highest possible way, uh, bandwidth way of communicating in person. We can sit here, we can shake hands, we can wave, we can, uh, we can look at a whiteboard together. Now, the, the advent of modern communication tools is naturally pushing us down towards the lowest possible way of uh, communicating. We do more and more text or chat-based communication. We rarely pick up the phone. Um, face-to-face uh, meetings become less and less um, in many cases. Um, and and uh, and and uh, the likes of you know tools, video conferencing tools mean we can we can meet remotely. Now, remote and video is obviously next best thing to meeting in person, um, and both of them are far better than text-based communication. So at Hugo, we skew towards high bandwidth communication. We know that there's a lot, um, a lot that's lost when I'm sending you a quick Slack message, a quick email, um, even when we're collaborating in a document. So how do we communicate in that higher bandwidth way? Um, now, I know what you're thinking. That sounds like more meetings, and that's not the case. Because the other the other leg that I was going to mention is that we have a four hour meeting week at Hugo. We don't spend more than four hours of our week in internal meetings, so they sound they sound conflicting. Well, back to my first point, um, there's lots of other ways to communicate in a high bandwidth way. We use video extensively. If I have an idea, a bit of feedback, something I, I thought about, a concern, I'll record a quick video um, on my computer and, and and shoot that over to you, and you can watch it whenever you want. Um, if we're in the same location. Um, there's no problem tapping on the shoulder or being like, hey, Eric, what do you think about this? Rather than reverting down to the, the text message, the Slack message, where all the communication's lost. So there's lots of ways to achieve high bandwidth communication without meetings. And then on the meeting front, minimizing meetings, uh, competing with that means that we're not sitting in the room to, to communicate about things that these tools that I was dissing a minute ago are well-placed to solve. Status updates, sharing information, um, checking in. We have project management tools. We have chat apps. We have collaborative documents. Why do we need to pull everyone out of what they're doing, sit in a room or sit on a video call to hear all these things that I can receive straight away? Meetings are for decision-making. Me- meetings are for discussion. Meetings are for idea generation, spitballing, riffing on things. That's the value of having all these brains in, in the room, not going around and sharing what I've been up to, which is reflected anyway in whatever tool you choose to use. So, in, in, in some there, we, we favor high bandwidth communication and minimize internal meetings. And those two things have dictated our communication culture as a company. It sounds like a lot of it is kind of just like really sitting back and looking at the tools available to you and being more thoughtful with how you're communicating and what actually needs to be 
I mean, I have I have a mug that says I survived another meeting that could have been an email. <laughs> exactly. But I guess it's really a matter of just thinking about um, what's the best use of your your team's time and how best to communicate it. Because I'm I've been in so many status update meetings that yeah. I, I can't even explain how much productivity I've, I've probably lost because of them. And it could just be an email. That's right. Or. Use a project management tool if relevant, and not only can you save the time, you get a better snapshot anyway of where everyone's at. I, I, you know, we log into Jira or Trello, and I can see the status of all the projects, for example. And if I have more questions, I can, you know, uh, uh, dive deeper. We have collaborative Google Documents. We share our meeting notes with Hugo, which is the product we we, we obviously uh, provide. So all these tools not only save that time, they do a better job of it anyway because that's what they're designed for. So I think one thing that probably goes along with that that I also got from the book is uh, not just saying that you're going to cut down on meetings. I mean, it's great to say you're going to have four-hour meetings, but that can be a great policy that I see a lot of people trying to implement and then not being able to fall through with because they're not doing some other things. Like I know in the book you mentioned that you really need to empower people to make decisions and not always have it bottlenecked at middle management and things like that. I mean, you hire a team. You had to trust them to make those decisions. So I was wondering if you could, one thing I was really interested in was hearing more about at Hugo, the shared decision log that you guys have and how you kind of approach making decisions and things like that. Totally. So this is my favorite thing. If you said to me, what's the most effective thing we've done as a business that I'll take with me for the rest of my professional career, it's absolutely the way we make decisions. Um, so this comes from um, a really, really impressive organization um, called called uh, Farnham Street. Um, there's another another podcast to check out called The Knowledge Project that specializes in in the way teams work together um, and a, a person named Shane, Shane Parrish. And what he went out and said is that the way you make decisions is the most effective way to achieve shared consciousness. So um, the idea that knowing how other people think and the, um, and uh, and knowing how um, they they look at things, the lens and perspective which they look at things. So we thought, okay, cool. Um, like any organization, we have a we have a challenge of getting make, making decisions quickly and not not being that bottleneck, that blocker to the team. But we also want to create this aligned team that that understand how each other thinks, where we can make better decisions on each other's behalf. So what the decision log is is. A central place, and we just use a type form, others use a document, there's lots of different ways to implement it, where every time you make a significant decision, it doesn't have to be huge, but something that matters to your job every day, you log that decision, and for that decision, you you, you note um, the decision you're making, the rationale, why I made that decision, the, the expected outcome, what I think is going to happen, and the, the review date, when we think we'll be able to review the decision. So... At a personal level, those things allow you to, without revisionist history, when you think back later on, like we all do, to at a point in time say, this is a decision I'm making, this is why I'm making it, what I think is going to happen, and this is a time at which we can reassess it. That's really great personal skill um, in, in making effective decisions to, for that feedback loop. But if that's now shared, everyone else on the team gets an understanding of my thinking, what I'm, what, what I'm concerned about in my job, the decision I'm making to respond to that, why I think that's the right decision and, and, the t and even the issues and matters I think about in, in coming up with that decision. Um, and we get to review that as a team, allowing everyone else to step into my brain to, just to understand how I think about things. Naturally, what happens, not only do you make better decisions quicker, other people on the team make better decisions like I would. 
So you often, if I'm not in that meeting or uh, if I'm not there, someone says, well, you know, I, I really think Darren would have done this or Darren would say this. Um, mm. And that's purely because they've, they've had this sort of snapshot into my brain. Um, and those decisions, just to be clear, um, we see decisions like engineering teams want to use this database structure. Okay, I don't really care or know about the stuff. I'm not an engineer, but it's very interesting to see how they evaluate and think about that. And then we have, we want to take capital from this, this investor. So decisions of any spectrum, it doesn't matter. It's about the process, not the outcome there. The process and not the outcome. That's something that's interesting to focus on because I think a lot of people always focus on the outcome, which I think we were chatting before, before the show about another topic you addressed in the book is failure and vulnerability. So when you're always focused on the outcome and not necessarily the process, that is where you can kind of be getting into like blame culture and culture that kind of may not be the most productive thing. Where if you have the process, you can kind of explain how you arrived at your decision. And at the very least, you know something that, that doesn't work. So could you go into a little bit about how you guys treat failure and vulnerability? Sure. So this is number one biggest mistake in building Hugo to date um, that, you're, that you've touched on. Um, I came from a very corporate hierarchical place and, and professional upbringing. And I always thought the, the leader is the fearless leader who always knows the right thing. Um, and that's how we started building things at Hugo. Um, we wanted to be that strong leader, we thought. And we thought that was strong, um, who could who had had all the problems but had the solutions before there were anyone else's problems. Now, in uh, in retrospect, um, that is probably this one of the one of the one of the craziest perspectives, one of the um, one of the biggest mistakes we ever made. Um, we've gone and invested all this time and money hiring great people. Um, these people are smarter than us in their relevant domains. Um, that's otherwise, we wouldn't hire them. They know they have. They're full of great ideas. They have unique perspectives because not everyone's the same as same as me or same as my co-founder. Um, and they know what they signed up for. They they they're they're excited by the challenge. But here we are trying to take uh, all of these problems, apply only our own perspectives to them, deliver them as a solution, and not even allow anyone else to have input into the problem because that's what we thought good leadership's like. Um, now, as soon as we sort of hit, sort of call it rock bottom of problems uh, outweighing solutions, we didn't have a choice but to open up, to turn to the teams like and say, hey, guys, we've got some pretty big problems right now um, in the early stages of the business. We don't know how we're going to solve them. Expecting everyone to be despondent and, and, and leave and, and not, not, not continue on the journey with us, um, the opposite happened. Everyone's eyes lit up. They were finally excited to, A, have a, me- a meaty problem to bite into, B, to see us as leaders being human and relatable and vulnerable and having made mistakes. And, 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 and thirdly, they had all these ideas and solutions that I would never have thought about because they're completely different people from different backgrounds with different skill sets. So the vulnerability goes to really what a strong leader is, which is being that vulnerable uh you know, pervious uh, person who doesn't have all the answers, who has, who who shares the problems, is definitely facilitating the right direction um, and making sure we we come up with a solution as a team. But not, but not having the solutions themselves, um, allowing the team to do that. And as soon as we made that tw- that tweet, two things happened. One, life was a lot easier. I, I realized that having problems is everyone's problem, not mine. I wasn't carrying the weight of the team on my shoulders. Um, and two, we had much better outcomes. 
we had all these diverse perspectives that are full of really great ideas and different solutions that led to led to a bit of better business outcomes. So that's how we look at vulnerability. And, and I think that's a, a, a lesson perhaps for a young leader, someone starting out or growing in the ranks of leadership. Um, it's not what you think it is. Um, sort of being yourself and natural and, and organically vulnerable is, is the secret to leadership, not being that 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 strong in inverted commas, um, you know, top down having every answer person. I can see where that's gonna be. Uh, gonna be very tough for so many people that they probably they probably found themselves in meetings not knowing the answer or not knowing what to say, but having to keep talking like they know the answer. Uh, it's probably a very exactly. scary feeling for them just to, to stop and open up and say, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly. I'm not sure how we're going to solve this. Here's what we know. Um, I can't tell you how often I record a quick video late at night where I've run into something and I don't know what we're going to do. And I'll just record a video and say, hey, team, here's where we're at. I, I know this is a growth problem and I look after growth. I know this is an engineering problem and I run engineering, uh, but I'm not sure what we're going to do about this. What does everyone think? And then you and then you see, you know, hours later, you're seeing all these really fantastic ideas. Um, whereas I would have just sat on that problem until I'd come up with something, even likely a suboptimal solution days later, um, under my sort of old pre-vulnerable <laughs> way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, you've invested all this time and money in people. It's all about trusting them to do their job. So I guess yeah. another aspect of, I guess, building culture is that cultural fit. How do you make sure the right people are on board, whether it's the interview process or even just knowing once they're in place, and maybe it's been a few weeks and you know they're not a right fit. How do you reconcile that? How do you deal with that? Yeah, so that, that's a tough age-old question, as you know. Um, I don't think we've nailed it, to, to be completely honest. Uh, I think we've got a lot to learn about recruiting um, and, and cultural fit. I, I think the, the only lessons we've learned so far that are helpful there, one is to split um, the sort of cultural element and the skills element. Um, skills are, e are much easier to evaluate most of the time. Um, if you're an engineer, you'll do a co-test. If you're a marketer, we'll look at some of the work you've done and the results you've got. That that, that should be pretty easy to verify. Um, so how do you evaluate culture? You have to get to know someone. You have to understand values. You have to understand um, and make sure there's alignment there. Um, and you have, to, you have to have the forum to do that. One thing we do at Hugo is we mix the medium and format of the interviews or, or, the, or the process. So they're not all sit down at a desk and uh, I'm going to ask you questions and you're going to give me answers. Um, we we'll, might start with a call. Then we might have a formal interview, you know, via video or, or, or over a table. Then we might go for a coffee or a drink um, and have dinner and talk a bit more about what your, your perspective on things um, out there. Um, we, for a lot of our marketers in some roles, we ask them to record a video about something they're passionate about, a 10 minute video telling us a story. Um, you, mm. So we're really mixing up the different ways of interacting as humans, a bit to the bandwidth point from before, uh, but also that's how you get to know someone. Um, you know, it's very hard to make friends when uh, all you do is is interact with them in, in the same way about the same topic, right? So how do you get to know people? You, you deal with them in different ways. You see them socially. You might go to the movies one time and hang out another and go on vacation. And, and we try and emulate that as much as we can in our hiring process. And that's been effective. But if anyone's got any other great ideas, <laughs> I, I love reading about uh, about recruiting for culture and, and, and how, how you maintain that as you grow your team. Well, it's really interesting that the different uh, mediums that you, you touch on because you probably see different ways of how they communicate through text, how they can communicate through video. And I bet even when you see how they communicate over dinner or coffee, they probably think it's more of a relaxed setting and they can maybe be more of themselves. I know uh, one thing you should maybe check out after is 
I think uh, Dave Ramsey, the financial yep. kind of guru, I think at Ramsey Solutions, they have a 12-step interview process. So people wow. are touched 12 times, and the last step is that, that dinner with the hiring manager. But not only the hiring manager, but the hiring manager and, his, and their spouse with the candidate and their spouse. Oh, wow. It's a very interesting, interesting. way. Yeah, so that's one to check out. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, I, w- I will definitely. It's also tough, obviously, reality sets in um, as far as you know, you're know, you a young business, you're trying to make things happen fast, you want wins now. Um, and that's why trying to balance the ideal with the practical, I definitely recognize. But I'll definitely check that out. That's, re- that's a cool story. Yeah. So Darren, um, one last question before we wrap up. Uh, for everyone out there listening, maybe you can just tell them a little bit more about Hugo and how your company will solve all their meeting dilemmas. <laughs> sure. So Hugo's connected meeting notes software. Uh, we have a view that meetings are what drives company culture. Um, they're where decisions are made, where tasks are generated, uh, where where company culture is, is determined. Uh, a lot of the company culture is determined. So how do we make meetings uh, a, a force for productivity and for alignment? Um, by, by, t- by taking meeting notes and making them shareable and actionable. So Hugo's uh, software, um, it's, for, it's for the whole team's meeting notes. Uh, we, we ta- you take your meeting notes in Hugo, we connect them to all your other teammates who weren't in the room to be on the same page and all your other tools to keep everyone in sync, your project management tools, your CRM, um, wherever, and, and 20 other tools where work gets done. Um, so you, you should check it out. It, it sort of grew organically through us building a business and our learnings around sharing information more widely and connecting our tools to help with culture. Um, it's, it's free um, as well for small teams at hugo.team is, is our domain um, but definitely worth checking out um, through the lens of culture as well Well, Darren uh, thank you so much I will make sure that in the show notes of the episode there's a link to 10x culture to hugo.team and thank you so much for coming in and talking to me um, meetings and just working more efficiently are things I'm really passionate about and, and love learning more about totally thanks Eric thanks for having me really enjoyed the conversation thank you So thank you once again, uh, Darren, for coming on the podcast. And I know it's not a strict marketing topic to talk about culture, but it goes hand in hand to me. Culture is something that bleeds through. Your customers will see it. So even if you have a nice shiny exterior, but it's a rotten apple core on the inside, your customers will see it. They will know and it will come across in everything you do. So when I look at marketing, it's all about all these customer touch points, no matter what they are, you want them to be stellar. And really, for your marketing team, your marketing efforts, you want them performing at the highest possible level they can be. You want everyone bought in on your organization. You want them to operate the way you do or you would if you're not there. And you can only do that through culture. Sure, you may have some high-performing staff that will do it on their own, but not everyone's like that. So culture is the one way to instill the values and key behaviors that you want in your team. And really, it takes some time to build. But once you have this, once you have this organization built up your way, it's such a relief. It's such a stress off your back that you don't have to worry about. And it can allow you to focus on newer, bigger things, new marketing campaigns that will really drive your business. So if you're a business owner or if you're not and you're just someone on a team, Look at how culture is impacting your team and how things are working. 
even if you're at a dysfunctional organization, you can still get a lot of great lessons on what not to do by looking at their culture. And myself, I've been in some very toxic cultures, and they were eye-opening. Experiences that I would not trade for sure. So again, thank you, Darren. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you could leave the show a ratings interview on whatever podcast player that you're listening to, that would be fantastic and really help grow the show. And if you have a question for me for an upcoming episode of the show, drop me a line at eric at and I promise I'll answer your question and hopefully give you some great feedback. So with that, thank you so much for listening. My name is Eric E, and we are out.